Chapter Forty One of the Fortunes of Glencore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rosie. The Fortunes of Glencore by Charles James Lever. Chapter Forty One An Evening in Florence. That happy valley of the Val d'Arno, in which fair Florence stands, possesses, amidst all its virtues, none more conspicuous than the blessed forgetfulness of the past, so eminently the gift of those who dwell there. Faults and follies of a few years back have so faded by time as to be already historical, and as, in certain climates, rocks and stones become shrined by lichens, and moss-covered in a year or two, so here, in equally brief space, bygones are shrouded and shadowed in a way that nothing short of cruelty and violence could once more expose to view. The palace where Lady Glencore once displayed all her attractions of beauty and toilet, and dispensed a hospitality of princely splendor, had remained for a course of time close-barred and shut up. The massive gate was locked, the windows shuttered, and curious tourists were told that there were objects of interest within, but it was impossible to obtain sight of them. The crowds who once flocked there at nightfall, and whose equipages filled the court, now drove on to other haunts, scarcely glancing as they passed at the darkened casements of the grim old edifice, when at length the rumor ran that someone had arrived there. Lights were seen in the porter's lodge, the iron grill was observed to open and shut, and tradespeople came and went within the building, and finally the assurance gained ground that its former owner had returned. "'Only think who has come back to us,' said one of the idlers of the Cashin, as he lounged on the steps of a fashionable carriage. "'La Nina!' And at once the story went far and near, repeated at every corner, and discussed in every circle, so that, had a stranger to the place but caught the passing sounds, he would have heard that one name, uttered in every group he encountered. "'La Nina!' "'And why not the Countess of Glencore, or at least the Countess de la Torre?' As when exiled royalists assume titles in accordance with fallen fortunes, so, in Italy, injured fame seeks sympathy in the familiarity of the Christian name, and society at once accepts the designation as that of those who throw themselves upon the affectionate kindness of the world, rather than insist upon its reverence and respect. Many of her former friends were still there, but there was also a numerous class, principally foreigners, who only knew of her by repute. The traditions of her beauty, her gracefulness, the charms of her demeanor, and the brilliancy of her diamonds abounded. Her admirers were of all ages, from those who worshipped her loveliness to that not less enthusiastic section who swore by her cook, and it was indeed great tidings to hear that she had returned. Some statistician has asserted that no less than a hundred thousand people awake every day in London, not one of whom knows where he will pass the night. Now, Florence is but a small city, and the lacquered boot class bear but a slight proportion to the shoeless herd of humanity. Yet there is a very tolerable sprinkling of well-dressed, well-got-up individuals, who daily arise without the very vaguest conception of who is to house them, fire them, light them, and cigar them for the evening. They are an interesting class, and have this strong appeal to human sympathy, that not one of them, by any possible effort, could contribute to his own support." They toil not, neither do they spin. They have the very fewest of social qualities. They possess no conversational gifts. They are not even moderately good reporters of the passing events of the day. And yet, strange to say, 
the world they live in seems to have some need of them. Are they the last relics of a once gifted class, worn out, effete, and exhausted, degenerated like modern Greeks from those who once shook the Parthenon? Or are they what anatomists call rudimentary structures, the first abortive attempts of nature to fashion something profitable and good? Who knows? Amidst this class, the Nina's arrival was announced as the happiest of all tidings, and speculation immediately set to work to imagine who would be the favorites of the house. What would be its habits and hours? Would she again enter the great world of society? Or would she, as her quiet, unannounced arrival portended, seek a less conspicuous position? Nor was this the mere talk of the cafés and the casquines. The salons were eagerly discussing the very same theme. In certain social conditions, a degree of astuteness is acquired as to who may and who may not be visited, that, in its tortuous intricacy of reasons, would puzzle the craftiest head that ever wagged in equity. Not that the code is a severe one. It is exactly in its lenity lies its difficulty. So much may be done, but so little may be fatal. The countess in the present case enjoyed what in England is reckoned a great privilege. She was tried by her peers, or something more. They were, however, all nice discriminators as to the class of case before them, and they knew well what danger there was in admitting to their guild any with a little more disgrace than their neighbors. It was curious enough that she, in whose behalf all this solicitude was excited, should have been less than indifferent as to the result, and when, on the third day of the trial, a verdict was delivered in her favor, and a shower of visiting cards at the porter's lodge declared that the act of her recognition had passed, her orders were that the card should be sent back to their owners, as the countess had not the honor of their acquaintance. Les grand coupes se font respecter toujours, was the maxim of a great tactician in war and politics, and the adage is no less true in questions of social life. We are so apt to compute the strength of resources by the amount of pretension that we often yield the victory to the mere declaration of force. We are not, however, about to dwell on this theme, our business being less with those who discussed her than with the Countess of Glencore herself. In a large salon, hung with costly tapestries, and furnished in the most expensive style, sat two ladies at opposite sides of the fire. They were both richly dressed, and one of them, it was Lady Glencore, as she held a screen before her face, displayed a number of valuable rings on her fingers, and a massive bracelet of enamel with a large emerald pendant. The other, not less magnificently attired, wore an imperial portrait suspended by a chain around her neck, and a small knot of white and green ribbon on her shoulder, to denote her quality of a lady in waiting at court. There was something almost queenly in the haughty dignity of her manner, and an air of command in the tone with which she addressed her companion. It was our acquaintance, the Princess Sabloukoff, just escaped from a dinner and reception at the Pity Palace, and carrying with her some of the proud traditions of the society she had quitted. "'What hour did you tell them they might come, Nina?' asked she. "'Not before midnight, my dear princess. I wanted to have a talk with you first. It is long since we have met, and I have so much to tell you.' Caramia said the other carelessly, "'I know everything already. There is nothing you have done, nothing that has happened to you, that I am not aware of.' I might go further, and say that I have looked with secret pleasure at the course of events which to your short-sightedness seem disastrous. I can scarce conceive that possible, said the countess, sighing. Naturally enough, perhaps, because you never knew the greatest of all blessings in this life, which is liberty. 
separation from your husband my dear nina did not emancipate you from the tiresome requirements of the world you got rid of him to be sure but not of those who regarded you as his wife it required the act of courage by which you cut with these people forever to assert the freedom i speak of i almost shudder at the contest i have provoked and had you not insisted on it you had gone back again to the old slavery to be pitied and compassioned and condoled with instead of being feared and envied said the other and as she spoke her flashing eyes and quivering brows gave an expression almost tiger-like to her features what was there about your house and its habits distinctive before what gave you any preeminence above those that surround you you were better looking yourself better dressed your salons better lighted your dinners more choice there was the end of it your company was their company your associates were theirs the homage you received to-day had been yesterday the incense of another there was not a bouquet nor a flattery offered to you that had not its facsimile doing service in some other quarter you were one of them nina obliged to follow their laws and subscribe to their ideas and while they traded on the wealth of your attractions you derived nothing from the partnership but the same share as those about you and how will it be now asked the countess half in fear half in hope how will it be now i'll tell you this house will be the resort of every distinguished man not of italy but of the world at large here will come the highest of every nation as to a circle where they can say and hear and suggest a thousand things in the freedom of unauthorized intercourse you will not drain florence alone but all the great cities of europe of its best talkers and deepest thinkers the statesman and the author and the sculptor and the musician will hasten to a neutral territory where for the time a kind of equality will prevail the weary minister escaping from a court festival will come here to unbend the witty converser will store himself with his best resources for your salons there will be all the freedom of a club to these men with the added charm of that fascination your presence will confer and thus through all their intercourse will be felt the parfum de femme as balzac calls it which both elevates and entrances but will not society revenge itself on all this it will invent a hundred calumnious reports and shocking stories but these like the criticisms on an immoral play will only serve to fill the house men even the quiet ones will be eager to see what it is that constitutes the charm of these gatherings and one charm there is that never misses its success have you ever experienced in visiting some great gallery or still more some choice collection of works of art a strange mysterious sense of awe for objects which you rather knew to be great by the testimony of others than felt able personally to appreciate you were conscious that the picture was painted by raphael or the cup carved by Cellini, and independently of all the pleasure it yielded you arose a sense of homage to its actual worth the same is the case in society with illustrious men they may seem slower of apprehension less ready at reply less apt to understand but there they are originals not copies of greatness they represent value have we said enough to show our reader the kind of persuasion by which madame de seplukoff led her friend into this new path the flattery of the argument was after all its success and the countess was fascinated by fancying herself something more than the handsomest and the best-dressed woman in florence they who constitute a free port of their house will have certainly abundance of trade and also invite no small amount of enterprise 
a little after midnight the salons began to fill and from the opera and the other theatres flocked in all that was pleasant fashionable and idle of florence the old beau painted padded and essenced came with the younger and not less elaborately dressed fashionable great in watch chains and splendid in waistcoat buttons long-haired artists and moustached hussars mingled with close-shaven actors and pale-faced authors men of the world of politics of finance of letters of the turf all were there there was the gossip of the bourse and the cabinet the green room and the stable the scandal of society the events of club life the world's doings and dinners divorces and duels were all revealed and discussed amidst the most profuse gratitude to the countess for coming back again to that society which scarcely survived her desertion they were not it is but fair to say all that the princess sabloukoff had depicted them but there was still a very fair sprinkling of witty pleasant talkers the ease of admission permitted any former intimate to present his friend and thus at once on the very first night of receiving the countess saw her salons crowded they smoked and sang and laughed and played a cart and told good stories they drew caricatures imitated well-known actors and even preachers talking away with a volubility that left few listeners and then there was a supper laid out on a table too small to accommodate even by standing so that each carried away his plate and bivouacked with others of his friends here and there through the rooms all was contrived to impart a sense of independence and freedom all to convey an impression of license special to the place that made the most rigid unbend and relax the gravity of many who seldom laughed as in certain chemical components a mere drop of some one powerful ingredient will change the whole property of the mass eliciting new elements correcting this developing that and even to the eye announcing by altered color the wondrous change accomplished so here the element of womanhood infinitely small in proportion as it was imparted a tone and a refinement to this orgy which without it had degenerated into coarseness the countess's beautiful niece ida delia torre was also there singing at times with all an artist's excellent the triumphs of operatic music at others warbling over those canzonettes which to italian ears embody all that they know of love of country how could such a reception be other than successful or how could the guests as they poured forth into the silent street at daybreak do aught but exult that such a house was added to the haunts of florence so lovely a group had returned to adorn their fair city in a burst of this enthusiastic gratitude they sang a serenade before they separated and then as the closed curtains showed them that the inmates had left the windows they uttered the last felice note and departed and so Vonsdorf never made his appearance, said the princess, as she was once more alone with the countess. I scarcely expected him. He knows the ill feeling towards his countrymen amongst Italians, and he rarely enters society where he may meet them. It is strange that he should marry one, said she, half musingly. He fell in love. There's the whole secret of it, said the countess. He fell in love, and his passion encountered certain difficulties. His rank was one of them, Ida's indifference another and how have they been got over evaded rather than surmounted he has only his own consent after all and ida does she care for him i suspect not but she will marry him pique will often do what affection would fail in the secret history of the affair is this there was a youth at massa who while he lived there made our acquaintance and became even intimate at the villa he was a sculptor of some talent and as many thought of considerable promise 
I engaged him to give Ida lessons and modeling, and in this way they were constantly together. Whether Ida liked him or not I cannot say, but it is beyond a doubt that he loved her. In fact, everything he produced in his art only showed what his mind was full of. Her image was everywhere. This aroused Vonsdorf's jealousy, and he urged me strongly to dismiss Greppi, and shut my doors to him. At first I consented, for I had a strange sense, not exactly of dislike, but misgiving of the youth. I had a feeling towards him that if I attempted to convey to you, it would seem as though in all this affair I had suffered myself to be blinded by passion, not guided by reason. There were times that I felt a deep interest in the youth, his genius, his ardor, his very poverty engaged my sympathy, and then, stronger than all these, was a strange mysterious sense of terror at sight of him, for he was the very image of one who has worked all the evil of my life. Was not this a mere fancy? said the princess, compassionately, for she saw the shuddering emotion these words had cost her. It was not alone his look, continued the countess, speaking now with impetuous eagerness. It was not merely his features, but their every play and movement, his gestures when excited. The very voice was his. I saw him once excited to violent passion. It was some taunt that Vonsdorf uttered about men of unknown or ignoble origin. And then he— he himself seemed to stand before me, as I have so often seen him, in his terrible outbursts of rage. The sight brought back to me the dreadful recollection of those scenes. Scenes, said she, looking wildly around her, that if these old walls could speak, might freeze your heart where you are sitting. You have heard, but you cannot know, the miserable life we led together, the frantic jealousy that maddened every hour of his existence, how, in all the harmless freedom of our Italian life, he saw causes of suspicion and distrust, how, by his rudeness to this one, his coldness to that, he estranged me from all who have been my dearest intimates and friends, dictating to me the custom of a land and a people I had never seen nor wished to see, till at last I was left a mockery to some, an object of pity to others, amidst a society where once I reigned supreme, and all for a man that I had ceased to love. It was from this same life of misery, unrewarded by the affection by which jealousy sometimes compensates for its tyranny, that I escaped, to attach myself to the fortunes of that unhappy princess, whose lot bore some resemblance to my own. I know well that he ascribed my desertion to another cause, and, shall I own it to you, I had a savage pleasure in leaving him to the delusion. It was the only vengeance within my reach, and I grasped it with eagerness. Nothing was easier for me than to disprove it. A mere word would have shown the falsehood of the charge, but I would not utter it. I knew his nature well, and that the insult to his name and the stain to his honor would be the heaviest of all injuries to him, and they were so. He drove me from my home. I banished him from the world. It is true I never reckoned on the cruel blow he had yet in store for me, and when it fell I was crushed and stunned. There was now a declared war between us, each to do their worst to the other. It was less a coming before him than to meditate and determine on the future that I fled from Florence. It was not here and in such a society I should have to blush for any imputation, but I had always held my place proudly, perhaps too proudly here, and I did not care to enter upon that campaign of defense, that stooping to cultivate alliances, that humble game of conciliation that must ensue. I went away into banishment, I went to Corsica, and thence to Massa. I was meditating a journey to the east, 
I was even speculating on establishing myself there for the rest of my life, when your letters changed my plans. You once more kindled in my heart a love of life, by instilling a love of vengeance. You suggested to me the idea of coming back here boldly, and confronting the world proudly. Do not mistake me, Nina, said the princess. The vendetta was the last thing in my thoughts. I was too deeply concerned for you to be turned away from the object by any distracting influence. It was that you should give a bold denial, the boldest, to your husband's calumny. I counseled your return. My advice was, disregard, and by disregarding, deny the foul slander he has invented. Go back to the world in the rank that is yours and that you never forfeited, and then challenge him to oppose your claim to it. And do you think that for such a consideration as this, the honor to bear the name of a man I loathe, that I'd face the world I know so well? No, no, believe me, I had very different reasons. I was resolved that my future life, my name, his name, should gain a European notoriety. I am well aware that when a woman is made a public talk, when once her name comes sufficiently open before the world, let it be for what you will, her beauty, her will, her extravagance, her dress, from that hour her fame is periled, and the society she has overtopped take their vengeance in slandering her character. To be before the world as a woman is to be arraigned. If ever there was a man who dreaded such a destiny for his wife, it was he. The impertinences of the press had greater terrors for his heart than aught else in life, and I resolved that he should taste them. "'How have you mistaken, how have you misunderstood me, Nina?' said the princess sorrowfully. "'Not so,' cried she eagerly. "'You only saw one advantage in the plane you counseled. "'I perceived that it contained a double benefit. "'But remember, dearest Nina, "'revenge is the most costly of all pleasures "'if one pays for it with all that they possess, their tranquillity. "'I myself might have indulged such thoughts as yours. "'There were many points alike in our fortunes, "'but to have followed such a course would be like the wisdom of one "'who inoculates himself with a deadly malady "'that he might impart the poison to another. "'Must I again tell you that in all I have done "'I cared less how it might serve me than how it might wound him? "'I know you cannot understand this sentiment. "'I do not ask of you to sympathize with it. "'Your talents enabled you to shape out a high and ambitious career for yourself. "'You loved the great intrigues of state "'and were well fitted to conduct or control them.' None such gifts were mine. I was, and I am, still a mere creature of society. I never soared, even in fancy, beyond the triumphs which the world of fashion decrees. A cruel destiny excluded me from the pleasures of a life that would have amply satisfied me, and there is nothing left but to avenge myself on the cause. My dearest Nina, with all your self-stimulation, you cannot make yourself the vindictive creature you would appear, said the princess, smiling. "'How little do you know my Italian blood?' said the other passionately. "'That boy, he was not much more than a boy. "'That greppy was, as I told you, the very image of Glencore. "'The same dark skin, the same heavy brow, the same cold, stern look, "'which even a smile did not enliven. "'Even to the impassive air with which he listened to a provocation, "'all were alike. "'Well, the resemblance has cost him dearly.' I consented at last to Vonsdorf's continual entreaty to exclude him from the villa, and charge the Count with the commission. I am not sure that he expended an excess of delicacy on the task. I half fear me that he did the act more rudely than was needed. 
At all events, a quarrel was the result, and a challenge to a duel. I only knew of this when all was over, believe me, I should never have permitted it. However, the result was as safe in the hands of fate. The youth fled from Massa, and though Vonsdorf followed him, they never met. There was no duel, you say, cried the princess eagerly. How could there be? This Greppi never went to the rendezvous. He quitted Massa during the night, and has never since been heard of. In this, I own to you, he was not like him. And as she said the words, the tears swam in her eyes and rolled down her cheeks. May I ask how you learned all this? From Vonsdorf, on his return in a week or two, he told me all. Ida, at first, would not believe it, but how could she discredit what was plain and palpable? Greppi was gone. All the inquiries of the police were in vain as to his route. None could guess how he had escaped. And this account was given you, yourself, by Vonsdorf, repeated the princess. Yes, to myself. Why should he have concealed it? And now he is to marry Ida, said the princess, half-musingly to herself. We hope, with your aid, that it may be so. The family difficulties are great. Vonsdorf's rank is not ours, but he persists in saying that to your management nothing is impossible. His opinion is too flattering, said the princess, with a cold gravity of manner. But you surely will not refuse us your assistance. You may count upon me, even for more than you ask, said the princess, rising. How late it is! Day is breaking already. And so, with a tender embrace, they parted. End of chapter 41 Recording by Rosie